Welcome to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast, day 13 at the 57th New York Film Festival. And it's day 13 of our daily podcast this year during the festival. In a moment, we'll listen to the audio from yesterday's tribute to the late Ben Barinholtz, John Turturro, Ethan Cohen, and Eamon Bowles joined Annette Insdorf for a conversation about a legendary indie film veteran who passed away earlier this year. We'll get to that in a little bit, but first, as we have throughout the podcast uh, during the festival, we'll meet uh, a colleague from Film at Lincoln Center. And I think this edition is a little bit of our um, kind of public service announcement telethon moment to uh, try to encourage everyone who's listening and who's been listening to these podcasts to get involved with the organization. My guest is Alexandra Salati, membership manager here at Film at Lincoln Center. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to share with our listeners a little bit of information about about membership. You know, we make the announcements before all the screenings, telling people to become a member, and we thank the members who already participate. And we'll get to that in a moment. But before we do that, let's talk to you more about your own relationship to uh, Film at Lincoln Center. Tell us a bit about the work you do here um, in a moment as well. But maybe to start off with, uh, how's the festival going for you so far? It's been amazing. I think it's been quite like a whirlwind in the best possible way. Seeing so many movies, your uh, perception of time is kind of a little bit uh, distorted as it is. And then <laughs> yeah. just seeing so many people, it's just so the energy here is just so amazing. So have you have you been able to I, I'm, I'm sure you're so busy uh, working and and uh, managing our members, but also uh, finding new members. Have you had a chance to watch the movies? I have. Um, most recently, I loved Parasite. Um, I also was a huge fan of Uncut Gems. Uh, I thought that was in insanely stressful, but just in such an impressive <laughs> film like nothing else I've seen. Um, obviously, also a huge fan of The Irishman. Um, so those are kind of my top selections right now. So, um, Alexandra, tell us a little bit about yourself as well. You've been here at, at Lincoln Center for a little while, but um, before that, you've worked at a number of other film institutions uh, here in the city. Yeah, so I started my career uh, over at BAM, Brooklyn Academy of Music, actually with Florence Almazzini from our, our own team. Yeah. <laughs> um, so from there, I worked at Museum of the Moving Image. Uh, I was also at the New York Public Library, and then most recently, Nighthawk Cinema. And I kind of started my career out at UCLA, Bella Bruin. Yeah, <laughs> um, um, but I studied theater and film there, so had a creative background and really found my place making the connection between audiences and artists. So how did you find that 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 place? I mean, tell me tell me about the work you've done at some of these other institutions and tell me how you um, found your found your your path. Sure. Um, I think I kind of found my niche in, in development and fundraising because I think connecting people to what they're supporting in the nonprofit world is such an important task. Um, when you're donating money at any level, you really want to feel like a part of the world um, that uh, you're supporting. So I felt like I could speak to the artist side and kind of also make sure that people are identifying uh, their own interests in terms of connecting what they're contributing to, um, to the larger mission of the organization. So I feel like through all these places, I've kind of just learned so much and picked up so many different ways of, you know, finding that excitement um, between donors and the, the work that we're doing. And it just kind of seemed to make the most sense to kind of land here and in terms of my background with film studies and um, and fundraising. So so here at Film at Lincoln Center, uh, outside the New York Film Festival, we show movies every day of the year on multiple screens. Um, like other not-profit, uh, not-for-profit arts organizations and film organizations in the city, uh, we do have a membership program. And so... What does that really what what is what does membership mean? What maybe bigger picture before we get into the specifics? Um, but but folks um, can certainly come here and watch a movie. You don't have to be a member to watch a movie at Lincoln Center. You can watch a movie on a on a Tuesday night um, any or any day of the week. Um, but folks become a member. Why do folks become a member? I guess is where I'm trying to go. Absolutely. I think membership provides really a deeper access into what we do, mm -hmm. um, which is to serve as providing a kind of context for the medium of film and more of a bond between art, 
artists and audience. Um, so our membership community, it involves people who, you know, are part of the industry, but also people who are just lovers of cinema and lovers of movies and maybe don't have the same language or, you know, background in in the study of production, but they want to be a part of the conversation. And I think no matter who you are, you know, you see a movie, you love it, you hate it, you want to talk about it mm -hmm. with somebody. So, you know, our members are really that core community of people who understand what we do and can continue the conversation when they leave. Um, but we also want to provide a place for them to have that when they're here. So I think our members are a warm community of professionals kind of at every level and it just gives a platform for those who have a sincere love for the craft mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. in terms of supporting and just being a part of um, the discussion. And um, in a moment, you can tell us a little bit about some of those different uh, ways in which and levels in levels at which people can become a member. But um, generally speaking, uh, what are the what are the sort of core benefits? Absolutely. So membership starts, the basic level is $85 for the year, and that provides $5 off, at least $5 off, every film ticket we sell. That includes the New York Film Festival, but we have programming basically 365 days of the year. So, you know, any ticket you buy, uh, at least $5 off. You also have a subscription to Film Comment Magazine, which is a staple of uh, what we do here and uh, such an important publication. So you have a print and a digital subscription to the magazine. Um, and then you also receive receive free invitations to screenings here um, throughout the year just for the New York Film Festival. I think we offered at least over 10 screenings to our members to sign up to attend for free. Um, so that is ongoing in terms of our programming outside of the festival as well and access to special events. And then we have pre-sale access for the New York Film Festival, which starts at our $200 level and kind of go, goes up from there in terms of additional benefits you receive. So at a very core level, um, and again, this is our this is our pitch. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, we really hope you'll you'll um, take advantage of this opportunity. But basically, at a core level, uh, for 85 bucks a year, that's just uh, seven bucks a month in which uh, you can contribute to the organization, but also receive a healthy discount on any movie ticket you buy, um, and and the other benefits that you mentioned. There are different levels of membership. Folks can contribute at a lower level and, and have access to some of the benefits you mentioned. And as you work your way up um, and work with your colleagues in our development department, even at higher levels, there's there's an increasing number of benefits. Maybe just speak generally for anyone who anyone listening who might want to contribute at a, at a higher level, some of the exclusive events you might get access to. Absolutely. Our patron program, obviously, you know, it's, it's the people that are most important kind of to our organization and they receive uh, access to patron screenings monthly. So we have one patron night a month where it's a special preview of a film um, followed by a reception here. Um, so that's something special that we do just for that group of supporters. Um, they are, there's also elevated access to our festivals like new directors, new films like the New York Film Festival based on your level of patronage. Mm -hmm. um, so we really are able to provide kind of a greater um, connection to, to the programming when you're part of that program. As a not-for-profit organization like ours, and, and certainly it's the same at many other museums and other film institutions around the city and certainly around the country, um, we don't receive all that much support and funding from the government. Uh, we have to really rely on, on individuals, individual donors, members, certainly partners and sponsors who can contribute to, um, to help us provide and and produce the programming that we do uh, every single day and and every single um, for every single festival we do and series we do throughout the year. Absolutely, and I would say with patronage, I mean it's a tax deductible contribution, and I think the biggest part of that isn't necessarily just the benefits you're getting, but the fact that you are underwriting so much of what we do, getting artists here from all over the world, paying for these you know rare prints that we're able to get and screen, um, you know outside of what you might find streaming, we're able to bring in movies that you really can't see anywhere else. And that support from our donors goes toward making all of that possible for anyone who's coming to our theaters to experience. It goes without saying, but for those who are listening who are already members or patrons or supporters of the organization, we certainly give a big thank you uh, because of the work we do, including this free podcast, would not be possible without that support. Um, one 
program that I would love for you to highlight and tell us more about is one that's certainly been getting a lot of attention because it's been growing and you've been, uh, in the time that you've been here, been working a lot on this program and that's New Wave. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Absolutely. So, you know, Film at Lincoln Center is celebrating 50 years uh, of of the 50th anniversary this year. And our New Wavers are really a core group that's going to bring us, I think, into the next 50 years. It's for members in their 20s and 30s. Um, So we have a lot of things that are exclusive for that group, like our New Wave Film Club, which we say is like a book club for movies, where our programming team, um, including Dan Sullivan, Tyler Wilson, and Maddie Whittle, uh, choose a film from one of our series playing throughout the year. Um, for everyone to see. And then we meet at a separate time over wine and light bites is what we say um, to talk about it and really have like an open discussion about about the film um, with fellow New Wave members. Um, And we also have special access, for instance, for Uncut Gems during the New York Film Festival. We had a special reception before the screening and also provided access, especially for New Wave members, as those tickets sold out almost immediately since it was the secret screening. Um, New Wavers had access to um, specifically to purchase through the membership program. Um, But we have events throughout the year, including like the... uh, opening night of new directors, opening and closing night of that festival. Um, New Wave Angels have access to events like that as well. Um, so it's really this burgeoning group and amazing community of, of our you know, younger um, audience. And I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's worth repeating and worth reiterating to anyone listening. Um, we, we really rely on the, the member support, but also member engagement, the opportunity to have this, this, active and growing community of film lovers who who we can connect with before and after screenings and hopefully who can connect with each other. Um, how can people find out uh, more about becoming a member and uh, what are the different ways that people who are interested can find out more about becoming a member, but also what are the opportunities that exist even in the final days of the festival? Absolutely. So we have membership tables at all of our theaters throughout the festival. So that's in Alice Telly Hall, Walter Reed Theater, or the Film Center. Um, so you can stop by. We have a 15% discount right now for new members as an offer, along with a Pedro Almodovar tote bag, which has been extremely popular. There are very um, few left. There, Yes, it's limited quantities. <laughs> Get one um, while you can. So feel free to stop by in person. But you can also visit our website, filmlink.org slash members, and use the code LOVEFILM if you're new and want to sign up and take advantage of those um, the special offer as well. And uh, for those who might be on site and might have a chance to meet you directly at the table, uh, there's also a wheel. There is a membership prize wheel in our final days. We will be there. So if you sign up as a new member or you're an existing member and I haven't seen you yet, that's a surprise because I feel like I've gotten to see so many people (laughs) here who are here literally every day, which is just incredible. Um, But we have special prizes to win, like archival issues of film comment, like free free tickets for our screenings throughout the year um, and tote bags and and lots of other things. So we're located in the Alice Telly Hall lobby um, for these last few days. So whether you're a new member who's interested in joining today or whether you're someone who's an existing member, drop by, spin the wheel, meet Alexandra and the team from our development department. And we really do. We say it all the time, but we really hope that that, uh, anyone listening, uh, if you're not already a member, we really hope to engage with you and see you not only in our audience, but as as a member and supporter of this organization. And we thank you for that support. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much, all the members, patrons, supporters out there. Alexandra, thank you for being with us on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for for having me. This is great. And now let's take a listen to that conversation about Ben Barinholtz, a legendary exhibitor, producer, and um, distributor of film over uh, many decades here in New York, who um, was celebrated yesterday at at the New York Film Festival by filmmaker Ethan Cohen, actor John Torturo, distributor Eamon Bowles, and film critic Annette Insdorf. Let's take a listen to that right now. Good afternoon. My name is Annette Insdorf. I am one of the truly fortunate people who got to meet Ben Barinholtz and get to know him. This was 40 years ago, actually. I had just started writing for the New York Times Arts and Leisure section, and it was the publicist Renee First, the source of so many good things in my life and that of many others. Uh, She introduced me to him, 
And I was drawn to the releases of not only his Libra films, his company, but then Circle Films as well, which he joined as president of in 1984, actually. And I was writing about films like Cousin Cousine and Mephisto. And uh, I, I want to say that I'm really touched that the Circle Films family came in from Washington. Ted Pettis, Jim Pettis, Bill Durkin, um, these were the true professional family that Ben had. Um, and of course, I was drawn to the man. Ben Barinholtz, as many of you here probably know, was this savvy, self-possessed, gentlemanly hipster. He was a mensch. <laughs> he, was a, he was a person of integrity who retained a whiff of that old European world while being drawn to the cutting edge of the Big Apple. Until around 2010, he rarely talked about the Holocaust. As a child in Nazi-occupied Europe, he saw and experienced his share of loss and pain. He came to New York in 1947 with pretty much nothing, no English. Um, he would skip yeshiva classes to watch movies. And uh, film became his escape, and then his passion, and then his vocation. From 1966 to 68, he managed and lived in the Village Theater, which ultimately became the Fillmore East. There, he helped nourish the counterculture with appearances by Stokely Carmichael and Timothy Leary, performances by uh, Leonard Cohen, Nina Simone, Ornette Coleman. He loved jazz, by the way, especially jazz saxophone. Um, he, he created a seductive identity and then such a rich legacy for those of us who love movies. Even before I met him, I benefited from his ambitious activities because in the early 1970s, I would go to the Elgin cinema for movies uh, like Alejandro, Alejandro Jodorowsky's El Topo or Wojciech Haas's Saragossa Manuscript, not even realizing that it was Ben who created the phenomenon of midnight movies. What a trajectory this man had. <laughs> I mean, from the Holocaust to Khodorovsky, from victim to village vanguard, from Polish boy to American impresario. I'm gonna introduce our panelists and we're gonna be having clips interspersed with our conversation. Um, Ethan Cohen, together with his brother Joel, is the writer-director of films including Ballad of Buster Scruggs, um, True Grit, A Serious Man, No Country for Old Men, Fargo, Blood Simple. And by the way, I first met him as Ben's neighbor because he was living at that wonderful 239 and a half East 32nd Street, which I'm sure some of you remember from the great birthday parties. Um, and uh, that was Ben's abode for decades. To his right is Eamon Bowles, president of Magnolia Pictures, the, distribu the distribution arm of Todd Wagner and Mark Cuban's 2929 Entertainment, which continues to distribute quality foreign as well as American independent films, including Man on Wire, Force Majeure, I Am Not Your Negro, RBG, and a film I love this year, Ask Dr. Ruth. But um, before that, he was president of Shooting Gallery Pictures, where he acquired and distributed films like Croupier and Time of Drunken Horses. To my right, John Turturro is an actor that I'm sure many of you know from Spike Lee's films, Do the Right Thing and Jungle Fever, Scorsese's Color of Money, Quiz Show, Francesco Rossi's The Truce, De Niro's The Good Shepherd, Box of Moonlight, Nani Moretti's Mia Madre, and the Cohen brothers, Cross, uh, Miller's Crossing, O Brother, Where Art Thou? And for his lead role in Barton Fink, he won the Cannes Film Festival Best Actor Award in 91. He also received Cannes Camera d'Or for Best First Feature for his directorial debut, Mac. His other films as writer-director include Illuminata, Romance and Cigarettes, Passione, Fading Gigolo, and the upcoming Going Places, now retitled The Jesus Rolls. It follows his character, Jesus Quintana, in The Big Lebowski. It will premiere at the Rome Film Festival October 16th. Also based on Bertrand Blier's Going Places, it stars Turturro, Bobby Cannavale, Audrey Totu, John Hamm, Susan Sarandon, and Pete Davidson. So, 
Before we start to talk, we're going to show two short, well, one is a very short clip. Um, it's from a 1998 indie film called The Naked Man, directed by J. Todd Anderson from a script that he co-wrote with Ethan Cohen. While the actor Michael Rappaport is the focus, notice Ben in a cameo as the cop, and then we'll go right into a clip from Blood Simple. Um, okay, so Ethan, <laughs> and Ben worked with you on this. He was then exec producer on Raising Arizona, Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink. What led you to Ben in 84 with Blood Simple? And can you talk a little about the shaping role that he had in your life? Um, yeah, we actually met him before 84, probably in, oh, I don't know when, 82? We, uh, 81? What did it have been? Yeah, in Libra, yeah. Uh, that was a long clip, by the way. Uh, I didn't Hard do the clip, so <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> Hard to watch from uh, this angle. Uh, we met Ben when we were raising money for our first movie. He had a company, uh, Libra Films, as you mentioned, and as Eamon knows. Um, and we went to him looking for money for the movie. Basically, we would uh, go and meet uh, private investors and, and, and anyone who was willing to meet us, which included Ben. And Ben just kind of, uh, we were immediately uh, taken with him. He just, uh, he just looked at us and laughed. He thought we were hilarious. I have no idea why. I didn't know what was so funny. Uh, he took us around to a few other people who had uh, money and who had done some financing of movies. And uh, they didn't think we were so funny. So Ben actually wasn't able to help us raising money for the movie. But <clears throat> when the movie was finished, we, of course, remembered him, and uh, back in New York, we uh, showed him the finished movie. He was then with Ted and Jim Pettis and Bill Durkin, who were here at a company called Circle Films, as you mentioned, and uh, they picked up the movie and distributed it and made our next couple of movies to boot. Um, so Ben was kind of the person who, um, the first movie industry person who I really met and got to know, which gave me a totally skewed idea of what people in the <laughs> movie industry were like. But anyway, he taught me everything I know about the movie business, which might be what's held me back. <laughs> Actually, when I was working at Libra, I had just started there, and they taught me how to run the 35 millimeter projector, being the low person on the totem pole there. And I remember one day these two guys came in to see Ben, and Ben came, for some reason, he was like, seemed to be particularly excited about it. He goes, yeah, put this on, put this on. It was like a little trailer reel. And you know, I was watching, it was all these incredibly fresh images and like camera angles and, and camera movements. And especially this one shot, I just remember of a camera going down a bar, tracking down a bar. And, you, and it's a guy lying on the bar, and you think it's going to stop there, but it just kind of goes over him and keeps going. And I was just like, whoa! And then again, like a few years later, I saw Blood Simple, and it was like, oh my God. Eamon, you started out in the film business at Libra Films. I gather you were shipping prints and helping with midnight movies. Um, you went on to do a whole lot more. I'm just curious about what role he played in your life, I mean, in terms of both the professional and a, a sense of how to navigate this crazy movie world that we're part of? Uh, he played an enormous role in my life, I have to say. Um, you know, it was my first entree into the film business. And my first entree into the film business, I was working as a legal proofreader and uh, I just heard there was a job there and I just went up and Ben interviewed me and I had my little suit on and then he hired me and then tried to See, it was less money than he originally promised me for, you know, but, but, but he, he, he fussed up. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I grew up as, a, you know, an immigrant with immigrant parents, and, you know, they were incredibly great grounding, but they never told me anything about modern life, you know, and definitely like modern New York City life, that's for sure. They, they just were of no guidance or help. And Ben was someone who I just, I, I said, wow, you could be that in life? My God, look at this guy. This is so great, you know working for an independent film company and kind of doing what you want to do. And uh, it, it was incredibly inspirational to me. And I was, you know, kind of naively said, yeah, I want to run an independent film company, you know, not having any sort of clue or anything. But it was, he was just an amazing person for me. And he also taught me the, the power of silence. 
and not uh, and not reacting, you know, which I always, you know, he would walk in the office and just kind of come in, just stand there and look at you, and then just walk out without saying anything. And, you know, like, what I do? What I do? And uh, I remember that not talking really well. That's something I remember from meeting Ben, uh, also that, that and him laughing at us. He would actually, I'm sure you've had this experience, he would just look at you and laugh and shake his head. But he wouldn't say anything because you were so fucked up that he didn't know where to begin. In all the time that I knew him, I don't think I ever, or maybe once or twice, heard him raise his voice. This was a man who modulated, he kind of, he was self-confident. He knew what he wanted to say and could sometimes do so with a look or a whisper and let other people fill in that, that gap. Um, before we ask John Turturro to talk about it, um, a, a clip was prepared from Barton Fink, and we're going to show that before we move into the next round. <laughs> One of the great pleasures for me just now is watching John Turturro and Ethan Cohen cracking up watching this scene again. Um, okay. Um, so, now... I, it strikes me that this producer that we see in the scene, was it Michael Lerner? Yeah. Is the exact opposite of everything I remember Ben Barinholtz being in, on a, in front of a you know, desk. You've worked with dozens of executives and producers, and I know that, yeah, that you, John, worked with Ben too. And could you talk a little about whatever Ben's shaping role was when you were talking with him about these films? <laughs> well, I, I was just I was just enjoying that because I, I, I see that uh, clip as a documentary. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> After this movie, I, I had a few experiences that were close to that. So, uh, uh, no, Ben wasn't like that at all. No, no, not at all. No. You know, he would have—he would have been the guy who came in the room and nodded, and he said, "You know, let him keep going," and then walked out. So uh, he didn't really—you uh, know—he was very supportive, and, and uh, you know, he'd just drop a little pearl here and there. So, uh, but he could have been in Barton Fink somewhere. Yeah, yeah he could have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he could have had a crossover at least. You know, yeah. yeah. He could have been a friend of Lou Breeze's. I, yeah. I don't know why I, it makes me think I, we uh, we got two T-shirts printed, one that said commerce on the front, one that said art, and we got uh, Joel Silver to put on the art one and Ben to put on the commerce one, and we took a picture of them shaking hands, kind of like Yalta. Um, I don't know what happened to the picture. I should find that. It's, oh. But I think one of the, I, we wouldn't want to give the impression that Ben was some, some sort of artsy guy who only cared about art. He had a hard nose for business. He understood that films had to make some kind of profit in order for the company to stay alive. But he seemed to understand the fine line, the, the ability to negotiate. Um, I'm guessing that if ever, Ethan, he looked over your shoulder, if you invited him to do so for an edit of a film, did he ever give some advice about either shortening a scene or shifting focus? Uh, no, I must say no. Uh, no. Okay. No. Uh, I yeah, think no, he was happy to let us do our stuff Whatever uh, in, in terms of that. He never gave us script notes or even movie notes. Uh, no, we talked a lot constantly about the movies we did together, but not about the uh, art stuff. It was all, always about the... Um, the business stuff. Ah, the art stuff was like him, it was the, just the equivalent of him looking, shaking his head like, uh, you know, either I don't know where to begin or, or whatever. Yeah. I, I, think, I think he had enormous respect for artists. Look at when he, he was in the 50s, like in New York City, he hung out with de Kooning and uh, uh, Hubert Selby and James Bolt. I mean, like he really, like I think he just respected artists and let them do their thing. I think his big pride was was identifying those artists and yeah. letting them yeah. go. Which leads us to David Lynch. Um, I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but when Lynch made his first feature, Eraserhead, 
it was Ben who was the nurturing person, the one who had faith in this young guy. He helped him a great deal, even sort of housing him and making sure he'd be all right. Um, he was making a racer head in 1977, and a clip has been prepared because it's going to show you a very different focus um, in terms of the films that Ben got involved with from Blood Simple or Barton Fink. So if we can have the clip from Eraserhead. Ben Barinholtz saw something in David Lynch and in that footage that others were not seeing at the time. Right, and uh, Lynch has, in many interviews, gone on record as saying that if it weren't for Ben, it wasn't clear that he would have even become a filmmaker. Um, I, I mean, the reason maybe that I was asking whether he was invited to look over the shoulder in the creative process is that Ben, he started as an exhibitor, then he was a distributor, then he was a producer, but he became a director. Um, he's less known, I think, among us for that, but in 2005, he made a documentary called Music In about the, the famous venue. And then I recall his Wakaliwood in 2012, a lighthearted documentary about the first action movie director in Uganda. Um, we meet Isaac Nabwana, uh, a very persevering entrepreneur, totally influenced by Hollywood movies. He knows about the actor studio and about improv training, and he learns from the internet what guns look like, and then has them made, bullets too. Um, everybody watches him editing on his computer, including a rooster. And I was shocked when I saw that, you know, because it didn't quite jive with what I thought of as this basically a guy who was on the other side of the artistic process. When something was finished, he would take it on. But there you go. And of course, in 2017 came the release of Ben's first fiction feature called Alina. It starred Daria Ekam Ekamsamova. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's um, about a young woman, uh, who, a Russian woman who travels to New York City to find her biological father with only a 25-year-old photo of a marquee and a man's face. We're gonna show a brief clip from that, and then fortunately, Daria is here with us, and she'll come up on stage to read a little text that she prepared. And now from Alina. And uh, Daria, I think is... Uh... Um, good, good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon again. Um, I was looking on this picture and thinking that just hits me and I found out myself that I didn't say goodbye to Ben and um, the last time when I saw him in Prague it was um, we had agreed that we'll see each other after finishing my shooting in a week and I was late and uh, when there was a wake in Prague it was also the very day when uh, the airspace between Russia and Czech Republic was closed and my flight was canceled and I was thinking now that maybe it was, I'm here to say goodbye to him. But I want to say hi because, hello Ben, because I, I know for sure because he is here now. And I feel it, and I, as a minimum, because he always told me that you mustn't miss New York Film Festival, and if you had a chance to go there, you must go. So, and I know for sure that he's sitting somewhere there and smiling at us with his humble smile. When I was to thank you uh, for that chance encounter in Russian Samovar, uh, when you have seen my movie and found me and made me believe that, made me believe in myself. And you inspired me that all the doors could be opened and shared your New York with me. And I saw New York through your eyes. And 
you inspired me that I can work and live here and you made me fall in love with the city. You're my mentor, my teacher and a huge part of my family. And I can imagine New York without you. But, you know, you were the first. I'm, I, I'm happy that um, I, uh, I was starring in your movie, the movie which meant a lot for you. Uh, and I still can't understand how you understood my English. <laughs> Funny enough, I was the first Russian actress who, uh, who had taken a part in American movie without speaking English. And uh, I don't know what language we spoke to each other, and I guess it was the language of two lonely, funny, crazy people in New York. But now I, I have been studying English so hard as I promised you, and I will do my best, you know. So, and um, you, you're a godfather of indie films and uh, honest and decent cinematography, and you introduced me to all of these legendary cinematographers, and uh, there are always be like you, a huge example, and, and vector of my art, and it's, it's also funny because tomorrow will be, um, right, one year, still uh, last year, in that day, Ben was the first person uh, who came to Lenox Hill Hospital uh, to congratulate uh, me on delivering of my daughter. And a lot of tedious in my house has the same name, Ben, and Mr. Barringholz, and and I want to say goodbye to Ben. In Russia, we say that if you, if the person is alive, till you remember him, and there is no way around Ben, you will be always with us. Thank you. Thank you, Daria. And I'm sure that quite a few people in this audience recognized the locale of the clip from Alina, the Russian samovar, which for me, I, I mean, to this day, I cannot go into that restaurant on West 52nd Street without thinking of Ben, who loved to sip vodka in that space. He was very friendly with Roman, the owner. And uh, it wasn't a surprise when I finally saw Alina to realize that it was one of the primary locations for the entire film to be shot. I, I was even a little surprised, to be honest with everyone, when I saw Alina, because it was not all that edgy. It was actually a lyrical portrait. It focused entirely on this young woman. It didn't have any of that sort of anti-sentimental thrust that I associated with some of Ben's choices. For example, as some of you know, he tended as much towards the avant-garde or experimental as towards the traditional. You know, he may have distributed something like uh, Cocteau's Les Enfants Terribles, but he was also the distributor of Guy Madden's Tales from the Gimli Hospital. Guy Madden, a Canadian maverick, and um, I should tell you that he sent a f the following recollection that he hoped would be read today. And I'm quoting him. Ben, I owe you so much. I wish I could be in New York on the panel in person among those who know and love you. Alas, I'm stuck in Winnipeg, a four hour drive north of Fargo, one hour south of Gimli, and I send you love of my own. Maybe neither of us got rich off our picture, Tales from the Gimli Hospital, but during our time together, I learned so much from you and in your company. Oh, how I long to possess your serene temperament, so gentle, warm, wise, and always frank. It's not easy to fake those pure qualities, but genuinely lacking them, that's all I can do, fake them. Thinking of you helps me in this process. I think of you all the time. 
Ben, it amazes me and moves me to remember you always found a way to see each of my subsequent films at their premieres and track me down afterwards to shake my hand. I cherish your post-screening assessments to this day. I want you to know how important they were to me. What a lovely man, Ben Barinholtz. And we're going to show a clip from the 1988 film Tales from the Gimli Hospital. Now, Eamon, um, you went on to become Senior VP of Acquisition and Marketing at Miramax, Head of Distribution at the Samuel Goldwyn Company. You were responsible for the release of movies like The Wedding Banquet and Much Ado About Nothing. Can you compare Ben's way of working with those with whom you worked afterwards? Yeah, it's, um, you know, there was a bit of a shift after, you know, a few, a while, basically, there were very few films getting released, especially independently, during the Libra years. You know, if you put out a film, there'd be like one or two other films opening that week. And if you got a good review in the New York Times, it, you know, it kind of off to the races pretty much. And it was, it was kind of, I don't mean to be reductionist, but it really was much, much simpler than to, to do that sort of thing. Um, you know, when independent films started getting popular, you know, like there wasn't a lot, a lot of money in independent films. I mean, you know, and there still isn't, you know, unfortunately. You know. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of money put into independent films, but there's not a lot of money in them. Uh, and, you know, back then, like the, the kind of cool factor that Ben had and just doing something that was culturally significant, like if you could get, you could get really smart people talking about it and it becoming, having a certain cachet, that sort of disappeared with the Entertainment Weekly top 10 lists what made money this week, and, and it just became a completely different environment where the art was, you know, second, you know frankly, it just became a secondary consideration to, to how much it could rake in, and, um, at, which is, you know, endlessly sad, and, you know, it's, I don't know if, the, if it's going to turn the other way, but it, I, think, I think in some ways it is kind of is turning the other way, unfortunately, due to the SVOD platforms like Netflix and stuff that now people can kind of, don't have to pay for, they can just sit there and sample and, some of the good ones actually do rise, interestingly enough, you know. Um, um, but he, like I said, he always had this nose for what, what people would respond to and what, and what they would get. Like, like Eraserhead, apparently when he saw the film, uh, which the original Variety Review, the, the headline was Commercial Prospects Nil. Um, <laughs> he, apparently when he saw, the, as soon as he saw the baby, you know, after years of doing the midnight film, as soon as he saw the baby come up in the film, he apparently walked out of the screening and called the baby Lynch and said, no, we're going to do this film. You know, like, you know, he just knew that that would like be something that audiences would respond to. Um, but it's, it's a very different environment now, you know, much for the worse, you know, obviously. Well, I, How's everything in life? I think he really was, among other things, a tastemaker. Yeah, no, he had tremendous... I mean, if you went to the Elgin, you, you know, I, I was introduced to a lot of movies. I mean, I, I don't, and pot at the same time. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't smoking, I was just inhaling it. But uh, <laughs> I, I had some great experiences there uh, being introduced to these films that I, you know, that I would have never seen. But I kind of knew that this theater was, you know, they had these midnight shows, and I went there. And later on, that continued even after I got to know him, he would, give me scripts uh, from other writers, n things that maybe we're not able to actually bring to fruition, but they were always interesting and right along the same line and eclectic and, uh, you know, and different, so. I like to think that Ben had what Ernest Hemingway called a built-in bullshit detector. Oh. And he would... the, the biggest, yeah, really, he was the biggest bullshit detector on, on the planet, really. I, yeah. You know, that, that was the great thing about him is just like, he would, he, he was very stern on the surface. You know, he was very stern. And yet he was incredibly kind to people who he thought were good people. And that was the one thing I always loved about Ben is like there'd be some person who was completely unfashionable, like no one thought they were cool, but they were trying hard and they were a good person. And Ben would always have time for them and always have grace for them. Yeah. And uh, that, that's really. Well, he trusted his instincts about movies and about individuals and didn't expect either of those categories to fit a particular mold. Each one came with a unique set of possibilities or limitations, and I think he dealt directly with them. Now, Ethan, you, you were, I think, the last one of us to see him alive. You went to Prague about six months ago or so. I have a question that I, I frankly do not know the answer to. I have 
I gather that before he died, he had been working on a project. He wanted to direct a film called Aaron based on the Holocaust experiences of his father and, and him. his father was killed. Um, how far along was he in that project? Uh, actually, he had kind of given up on it at that point. I wasn't the last person to see him from among the people here. Actually, Darius on there after okay. I did. Um, but yes, it was a script that he'd written about his uh, childhood, basically. Um, and um, yeah, at, that, at, at a certain point, he kind of gave up on getting it made. It's interesting. He and Miller's Crossing... Um, there's a scene where John gets uh, let out into the woods to be shot, presumably, by Gabriel Byrne. And um, um, I think it was Jay Hoberman wrote a review about linking in some way, making some connection between that scene and the Holocaust, which I thought was far-fetched. Miller's Crossing was a gangster movie, and I didn't quite get it. Um, but it didn't, I, you know, it's kind of a dumb review, but you go, okay, it's a dumb review. Movie comes out, you get dumb reviews. But Ben was really incensed by it. And, um, and as you said, he didn't really talk about it. I had no idea why he didn't talk about that stuff until, you know, really starting uh, a few years ago, 10 years ago, maybe his childhood experiences. His script was about that. And his father was shot in the woods outside his village, basically in front of Ben. Uh, who was eight years old or whatever at the time. Um, so I still don't know why that <laughs> incensed Ben so much. I, I guess it's kind of obvious. It's like he didn't like facile connections being made uh, about something that was personal to him. Uh, but yeah, that was interesting. Well, I don't know, maybe because the character's name, was it Bernie Schmattes? Um, <laughs> it, it lends itself to, I don't know, some kind of an older European, perhaps, uh, context that might not otherwise have been the case. Um, at the 2010 Hamptons Film Festival, meaning exactly, actually, actually this week, exactly eight years ago, there was a tribute to Ben. And he was alive and well and taking it all in. And I went back to the notes that I had from that night, because I was one of the many speakers. And I, I remember that night thinking, wow, there are so many more women speaking here tonight than usually at tributes. There were a couple of guys, all right, but it was, you know, Marsha Gay Harden and Frances McDormand and, and Stephanie, who's here, and, and me and a few others. And I wouldn't want to leave out the fact that if we're talking about Ben Barinholtz, he loved the ladies, and the ladies loved him. Um, he was a confirmed bachelor, one of the few who managed to remain so until his early 80s. Um, and he, he was, in fact, a, a character, somebody who was not like anyone else in his personal life as well as his professional life. And that night, a lot of us got to, you know, celebrate him in front of Ben so that he knew how much gratitude, appreciation, and love was still in that room. And it was shortly thereafter that he started writing a text about the Holocaust. He actually shared it with me and a few other people. And then he started writing rather angry emails that he wanted to post, and then he wasn't sure if he should post, attacking the likes of Jared Kushner. Um, but politics was never his explicit forte. I mean, he would find a way to express himself through indirect or oblique means. Um, but he was very adamant about a couple of things towards the end of his life. That he was not a believer, that he was an atheist, that he didn't want much of a memorial. He agreed when Tom Prassus, um, I think, brought up the topic only if it would be connected to a charity, right? And what's the charity that we're... No Child Goes Hungry or something? No Child Hungry is the charity that if you go on Facebook through Tom Prass's um, uh, link, you'll find it and you can make a donation. Um, he was not comfortable with anything that had the whiff of sentimentality. On the other hand, it's impossible for us to sit here either on the stage or for you in the audience without private memories of this extraordinary human being and a lot of what he overcame 
in order to become this uh, gentlemanly hipster godfather of indie cinema, as uh, you put it. Oh, I remember. There was another wonderful line, Henri Béard, when he heard about the Hamptons tribute, he called Ben the mischievous pope of independent cinema. And I found that rather appropriate. Um, we're going to give the last word to Ben um, because we have a three minute clip from Perseverance, A Journey. This is a documentary about Ben. It was made for Polish television in 2015 by Małgorzata Imielska. And I believe that Ben was in the process of re-editing the 70-minute documentary for an English-speaking audience. It traces his roots in Poland, where he and his brother survived the Holocaust, to New York. And the film actually documents his return to Poland, um, visiting the woods where he hid from the Nazis for 22 months. And he makes a point of finding the family who hid his ancestors, making sure that they are honored as rescuers. Since this will be the last part of our official panel presentation, and afterwards people can just mingle and, and talk a little about personal memories away from the official part, um, I just want to say thank you to Film at Lincoln Center, especially Kent Jones and Sophia Tate, and especially to Tom Prassus for creating this event. And I know that even if Ben would have been a little, mm, yeah. <laughs> he might have been just a tad uncomfortable that we're sitting here and talking about him and, you know, these hushed tones. But I too like to think that he's looking down on us um, with a glass of vodka and an unfiltered cigarette. Um, and especially because in a few hours it'll be Yom Kippur where many of us will be memorializing those we loved. Um, even if he was not a believer, I think Ben would have accepted my saying in closing, may his memory be for a blessing. And now the clip from Perseverance. Thank you for being with us. You've been listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Film at Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City and supported by individuals just like you. For 50 years, we've been dedicated to supporting the art and elevating the craft of cinema and enriching film culture through the programming of festivals, series, retrospectives, and new releases. The publication of Film Comment, the presentation of podcasts, talks, and special events, the creation and implementation of artist initiatives, and our film and education curriculum and screenings. To learn more about what we do and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org. That's F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C dot org.